1: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello and welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester with me, Clint Boone. Every week we'll be celebrating the spirit of Manchester by speaking to somebody who's helped shape the city. This week I'm joined by the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. He's going to tell us about growing up at the other end of the M62 and causing trouble as a teenager. I, I feature in the
3: book Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby because he, he complains in it about how Highbury was never used for FA Cup semi-finals after some stupid Everton fans ran on the pitch
2: in uh, in 1984 and uh, hands up, I was, I was one of them. And he'll also talk about his favourite Manchester musicians. Stone Roses, it feels to me that they're just timeless and they're for every man. My guest today, a man who for the last 18 months or so has held the position of Mayor of Greater Manchester and amongst other things, he's uh, made it part of his mission to address the city's homelessness problem and he also played a massive, a vital part in helping the city and its people through the months following the arena tragedy of May 2017. Andy Burnham, welcome to Humans of Excess Manchester. Thanks very much, Clint. Great to be back. Nice to have you back. Are you still enjoying
3: the, the job then? Do you know what, Clint? I'm loving it. You know, I've not spent a minute where I think, "Oh, I wish I was back in Westminster." You know, I feel so privileged to be doing the job in a, in a city, in a, in a region like, like the one that we live in. You know, I, the support I'm getting from people is, is great. I just hope I can repay it. I believe in this place in the north of England. Always have done. I've, I've long felt that the way the country's run isn't fair to the north. And in my own little way, now I'm trying to do something about that and mm. even things up and get our voice heard a bit more, you know, really make sure that, you know, never do we get decisions taken where people are just kind of riding roughshod over us. As we all know, as has happened in the past.
2: Absolutely. I think that's why the city's embraced you, though, because you're, you're a very rare thing. You're a, a politician who seems to be doing it for the right reasons, like the, the love of people, the love of the, the city that you represent. And that's why we've all embraced you. It's a rare that's thing. Nice that's. say that. I mean, I,
3: you know, I was obviously... in politics for a long time as you said and was in a government in the labor years and I, I kind of if i'm honest went on a bit of a personal journey through those through those years you know i kind of you know at one point you're in young you're trying to get on and you build your career but you know things i started to question and i suppose it all came to a head in 2009 when i went back to my city of my birth for the anniversary of the hillsborough um uh disaster and um I knew that day, as somebody from the North West, I had nothing to say to the people there. And I knew the government I was in I hadn't done anything for them. And, mm. you know, in terms of the journey I've been on, Clint, that I suppose was the kind of moment of, you know, really quite profound change. I was going to say profound, person. it's a word that popped yeah.
2: right up in my head then. So, yeah, that's a quite life-changing uh, moment, isn't it, for, for you as a politician and for the city as well, obviously, Liverpool. Let's go back to the beginning, because a lot of what we're talking about in these podcasts is... Uh, the stories behind people, you know, how it all started where they were born, what the what how they did at school. I know that you were a bit of a sporty kid. We're going to touch on that in a minute too. But first of all, tell us uh, where and when you were born, Andy. So I was born on the seventh of January, nineteen
3: seventy. So I just made it into the seventies, in Keeble Drive in the old Roan in uh, in Aintree. So that's hard to admit when you're the mayor of Greater Manchester. But yeah, I was uh, I was born down the other end of the M62. Yeah. So my dad, Scouser through and through, got a job in Manchester uh, in the early seventies. A place called Dial House in Salford. So he was working for the old post office, which became British Telecom, and he um, he, he had to uh, kind of uproot from Liverpool. And um, they decided to go to go halfway, and uh, grew up in the in the Lee area. But then all my my years were here, really, Clint. So you know, people will always say to me, oh you know, scouts, whatever. But to be honest, it's only really football that was my Liverpool connection. Uh, most of my formative years were, were spent in these in these streets. And what did your mum do for a job? So my mum uh, was a telephone receptionist and she met my dad at a telephone exchange and then later on became a GP's receptionist. You Kit know, was in and out of work a bit. So uh, they mean everything to me, mom, my mum and dad. They've backed me all the way, they still do. And, and still uh, around, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and we're just such a close family. And uh, all the things... I've done in life. They've always
2: been behind me and it's just the way they've encouraged me to see the world is all, all down to them to be honest. And was politics a big thing in the, in the family back then when, when you were a child? Because you joined the Labour Party when you were 14 or something. Didn't you?
3: I know it's quite young. People must think I was you know a real geek or something. <laughs> well, uh, maybe I was, but no, it was. To be honest, it was the experience of living through the 80s. Yeah. Um, my earliest political memory is watching boys from the black stuff with my mum and dad and starting yeah. to ask a lot of questions. You know, why is there people is that really what people are going through? And then go forward a few years to the miners' strike, well, in the Lee area, that was quite a big thing because it was in front of us. Yeah. So I remember being at school with lads whose dads were out on strike and mm-hmm. you know, we all had to bring food in and stuff. And that again was a was a big thing. And that's around the time that I then got uh, politically active. My mum and dad weren't activists or councillors or anything like that. You know, they were just Labour voters, but nothing, nothing more than that.
2: Yeah, but always keen to discuss with you the other state of the world. And always, things, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, the thing that,
3: if you like, radicalised me was Hillsborough. You know, when that happened, um, some of the events of the 80s have been kind of close, but not, not completely close. You know, so Moss Side, Toxteth, the miners' strike—they, they were kind of near, but not, not very, very near. Mm. But then Hillsborough obviously was people I knew, people I was at school with, and. um yeah, that 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 was then the kind of end of a of a long difficult decade, wasn't it? And yeah. uh, that that then pushed me into actively wanting to, to to devote my life to
2: politics. Let's go back to your childhood, Andy. How did you get on at school? I believe you're a, a bit of a sporty child, weren't you? I was always you know pretty good at school, um, so I was
3: top-ish of the class, I have to say, in right. uh, in, in most things until I got to uh, secondary school, which was in Newtonley Willows uh, Catholic School, and um, kind of fell in with the with the kind of wrong crowd you know tried to be one of the lads and and very much sort of lost lost my way in those middle years and right. i remember a teacher saying to me once that you know i'd, I'd got in the o-level set by the skin of my teeth uh, <laughs> and if you don't change you're gonna you're gonna not fulfill your potential and that was a big kind of moment where i kind of
2: regained my kind of focus a bit so o oh, rebellious for you then can you give us any anecdotes
3: uh, fairly um yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't a uh, uh, kind of a goody two shoes kind. Of, I you know, the odd, the odd scrape at school, and we used to. Um, it's interesting because we used to go to school, as I say, in Newtony Willow. So we were Saint Aylreds and up the road was a school called Selwyn Jones, and who would go to Selwyn Jones but somebody called Rick Astley. So he was involved in a band, mm. which was largely based at our school, and he used to come in and out all the time. But the thing with that was. Saint Errods and Sellys, as they were called, they, there was really no getting on at all, and this was a source of a lot of friction. So, on the high street in Newton at lunchtime, there was yeah, I was I have to admit to have been involved in a, in, a, in a few of those uh, uh difficult things. Yeah. And the my my claim to fame always was from growing up is uh, I, I feature in the book Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby because he he complains in it about how Highbury was never used for FA Cup semi-finals. After some stupid Everton fans ran on the pitch in uh, in 1984, and uh, hands up, I, I was I was one of them. Was, that, was <laughs> on the telly. It, I'll tell you the story about that because I I, I I was there. I got on a coach, and uh, it had gone from Ashton and Makerfield. We just get the Eavesway coach all the way down, and uh, you know, Adrian Heath scores this goal. You know, I was straight over the over the wall, straight on the pitch, and uh, my dad and we travel back. Off the coach, this has been about like twelve o'clock. My dad's like, "Oh, you have a good day, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. That, yeah. You behave yourself. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. So that wasn't you on match of the day on the pitch. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you being born in nineteen seventy, I reckon that the punk scene was probably the first music that really affected yeah, you. It was
3: you? At primary school punk was massive for mm-hmm. us. You know, we 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 did. We were really into it. We, we all had the Sex Pistols. Uh, EP, was it an EP? Well, it was called Friggin' the Rig, wasn't it? And everyone oh, had that, it. Yeah, yeah. Remember that? that? You that used to have to hide it from yeah, your yeah, mum in case yeah. your mum found it and played it. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I so I bought that, I, mean, I had Clash singles, but mm-hmm. I did go down to the, the record shop in a little place called Cultures where I grew up. There used to be a little record shop, and I remember picking up this single, had like a love art on the front, um, Ever Fallen In Love, the Buzzcocks. Mm-hmm. I'd heard it on Top of the Pops, immediately loved it. And, it was in the in the early then mid-80s, me and my brother started to like, ears started to pick up from what was going on over here. And we started to come into Manchester more and more and really kind of caught the wave. I think, Clint, is the best way to describe it. You know, we I can remember going into uh, Piccadilly Records and picking up Hatful of Hollow and buying it and coming back on the bus to Lee with it and reading yeah. all the notes and everything. And yeah, I, I can remember that very vividly. So uh, I was lucky really to
2: be in and around the city in that era. Let's talk about a modern uh, Manchester actor that you do love, the Cortinas. You're a big fan of the Cortinas, aren't you? Andy? Oh, I am. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've seen them. Saw
3: them at Heaton Park, and then again at the uh, at Old Trafford. I think they're brilliant. I yeah. think they're under uh, underplayed, really, and underrated. Actually, I mean, you know, the following they've got here shows how good they are. It's
2: phenomenal, isn't it?
3: It is phenomenal, and they're for me, they're the band of this generation that is most like the bands that we had uh, in the '80s and '90s. So they yeah. kind of have something you know, that is galvanizing people behind them and you know, create these events that are major events. I, I, I really, you know, I think Liam writes brilliant songs. I think yeah. he's a fantastic uh, lyricist as well. And uh, yeah, they're, they're a true Manchester band for me in every every sense of the
2: word. Have you got a favorite Cortina's track? Uh,
3: Take over the world because Beautiful. Um, I'll just tell you a quick anecdote about it. When I was standing to be the leader of the Labour Party in 2015, I was listening to it on a train when I was traveling to a, an event. And the lyric uh, came on, you know, I'm only a paper boy from the northwest, but I can scrub up well in my Sunday best. And I tweeted this, and uh, it kind of got a bit of pick up at the time. Oh, I remember Because I was a paper boy <laughs> once. Did in you the... do paper? Yeah, I did indeed. I did indeed. <clears And throat> it kind of fitted where I was at that time in my life. So uh, yeah, I, I always uh, I look back, I look back at that. It was uh, in that 2015 moment. This song was kind of uh, very much at uh, the forefront of my uh, my life.
2: Who's your favourite band of all time, Andy?
3: Oh, well, it's the Stone Roses. So for me, you know, I, I was very much into the Smiths in the in in the uh, mid to late eighties. I had the Morrissey haircut and all of that, but then I, I was just getting through university, and, when, and I just remember first hearing "I Wanna Be Adored." I'd, I'd got I, on John Peel, I think it was, and I was listening to it on my Walkman, as, as we used to have in the old days, pedalling around Cambridge at university, and I just thought, hang on a minute, there's some, this this is something different. Uh, and it, it brought everything together for me. There were a bit of Beatles there and it was just, it was the kind of record I'd waited all my life to hear, I think. And I can remember it vividly, first hearing that first Stone Roses album. And I came back from university and I was working at um, on Portland Street, at British Telecom on Portland Street. Um, I think it's called One Manchester these days, that building. And I used to go down in my lunch hour to Piccadilly Records every day. That's how I used to spend my whole lunch hour. And those were the days where it wasn't just the albums. They had a little booth in the corner that was selling um, tickets for, for gigs. And I remember looking up and seeing Empress Ballroom, 12th of August, 1989. Bought the tickets there and then. Three tickets for me and my brothers. And that for me, yeah, that, that, that night at, at Blackpool, I will never forget uh, that. that. That was... The, the main experience I had in my life of being part of something that was happening and it was really, be, but it being at the, there at the start of it, I suppose, rather than you know, being a, a kind of Johnny-come-lately. You know, for me, uh, that, that record, and the Stone Roses, as I've gone on, they've never dated for me. The Smiths have kind of veered in and out at times. I've liked them, then I've not liked them, and uh, it's partly linked to what Morrissey kind of comes out of his mouth. But I mean, you know, but I, <laughs> I've had a bit of that relationship with the Smiths. With the Stone Roses, it feels to me that they're just timeless and they're for every man. Whereas the Smiths, they always had a bit of a sense of, oh, if you're a bit, you know, intelligent and university, you'll like the Smiths and you use the Smiths to kind of separate yourselves from other people. Whereas the Stone Roses never had that feel to them. They were just for everybody and they kind of brought all comers together and that's what I loved about them.
2: Talk about sport. You're into your cricket and football. I think you still play football, don't you?
3: I do. I play five a side every Monday night. Um, I just think it's really important. Not, Not just for physical health, for your mental health as well. You know, it's just, Good to be with your brothers and your mates. And I like, you yeah. know, so I still uh, still do that. But yeah, I was I wasn't I was okay footballer. I was forced to play a bit of rugby league growing up. Uh, but my main sport was cricket. Yeah. I uh, was a was a pretty good cricketer.
2: So yeah. I was uh, a Lancashire schoolboy for a little bit. When did politics start becoming a sort of career option or a consideration? They reckon every uh, politician's a failed rock star, don't they? No, that's, what they <laughs> that's what they say, you know, and
3: they and they also say that politics is show business for ugly people i mean that's the other, the other thing but do you know i, I never would have admitted I, I probably wanted to be involved in politics and mp but i think this is true of a lot of people from the northwest you wouldn't dare say that would you at school i want to be a member of parliament you know people who go to Eton or some public school would say that wouldn't they? i want to be yeah. a lawyer or i want to be a... but whereas we kind of wouldn't voice that would we, we would kind of yeah. keep it inside so i probably didn't dare admit it until you know i was well into my mid-20s before i dared say i want to be an mp and i think that's kind of the way we are a little bit isn't it you know, but, yeah. but once I'd kind of said I wanted to do it I then really became quite focused on it and uh, yeah it was um, I remember, never forget it I was working in Westminster in uh, in the government actually the Labour government at the time and I got a call from somebody at number 10 Downing Street who said to me um, I'm not going to give you any help and you're going to have to go and win it on your own but you need to know that the MP for Lee is stepping down and I remembered that you're from that area somewhere aren't you and I said yeah I said, why, don't, why don't you put yourself forward so I just remember that. I just went from sort of having sort of a kind of vague idea that I might one day be an MP to sort of then just going completely focused on, yeah, this is the best chance and to represent a town like that in Parliament. I mean, what an opportunity. So so
2: you went to, did you go to Cambridge Uni? I did. And what, uh, what did you study there? Did, were you focused on politics then or was that even... No. Different? So I studied English at,
3: uh, at Cambridge University. I'm still... Uh, uh, waiting to find my knowledge of Chaucer uh, to have a use in politics. I'm not 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 found <laughs> it yet, but maybe one day it will come. But no, I, I studied English literature, and uh, yeah, I don't look back uh, in any way, in a bad way about that. Because though I did leave a very different world, the northwest in the 80s to Cambridge, and it was quite a, a culture shock to say the least. You know, mm. to be turning up there, it helped me understand how this country is two countries effectively. You know, yeah. th- there are people living. Completely different lives and it opened my eyes to how this country works and
2: some of the unfair ways in which this country works. So you spent some time in Westminster and there, there was a period there where you fancied um, leading the Labour Party mm-hmm. and maybe ultimately the, the country but I know for a fact that eventually you decided you didn't want that. You wanted to get back up north and do some some real work <laughs> with, the, with the real people. You put it very politely there, <laughs> Clint. Yeah, I lost the leadership twice right. I think is the, is the honest thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I stood on a, a kind of argument where i was saying that labor was too london centric which i believe it is what has been and still is and so is parliament mm. and my whole thing always was you know this needs to change you know you need to have all voice you know all parts of the country need to be represented equally in national political structures and i kind of feel that's the reason why the country voted the way it did at the referendum you know we've not lived in a country that has treated all areas the same, have we? You know, some areas get better treatment than others. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that frustration came out at the uh, at the referendum. But yeah, that was the moment for me when I lost to Jeremy Corbyn and, you know, and, and fair play, you know, I mean, he deserved to win that, that election. But when I did, it made me really think, it's time for me to change. Mm. People outside politics may not understand how people in politics can get disillusioned with it as well. You know, I, I was as disillusioned with politics as somebody not involved in it watching it from outside and I saw all of its shortcomings at very close quarters mm. and I just thought well yeah the time is to leave this and try and do something totally different rebuild something better closer
2: to home and that's what I'm trying to do. Tell us about that ultra moment where you <coughs> this coincided with that that period where you found yourself in Liverpool and you, you realised that it was time to not be part of that machine anymore. No you put it very well but that's kind of what it was like I mean
3: it's strange, isn't it, what life can do to you, the way in which it can put you in situations. Well, so I was put in by Gordon Brown as culture secretary in um, uh, 2008. And it was the year when Liverpool was capital of culture. And I immediately knew what that meant, that I might be in post for the 20th anniversary of Hillsborough. And I was honestly started worry I was worrying about that from mm. from the off because I knew, well, how, what can I do? What can I say? You know, what, what, how can I justify the lack of, uh, of help from a Labour government for its own city, you know, I, I it, it was just a, you know, one of those things where your personal and your professional life come into just a complete collision, and there's, you know, how do you make sense of it? Mm. So yeah, when I was, eventually um, invited to the twentieth anniversary at Anfield, um, I remember you know my blood ran cold and I just for weeks agonised about whether or not I should go and if I if I did go, what should I say? And in the end, my younger brother said to me, he said, uh, you know, look, Andy, he says, go if you're going to do something for them. But if you're not, just don't, you know, stay away. And it was good advice. And I, at that point, I really resolved to go and do something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've always said this, if, if I hadn't been the government minister standing in front of the COP, I'd have been one of those shouting at the government minister, you know, right. it, was, it, was, it was like that. And something I had to give. And uh, that day was the day when I think the dam broke a bit, really. And, yeah. and people um,
2: realised that there was something unresolved here. From day one of starting your work in Manchester, you made it your mission, if you like, to eradicate the city's homelessness and uh, rough sleeping problems. How much progress do you feel like you've made in the last 18 months? And why are you so, why are you so passionate about this particular cause? Because you are, you're very passionate about it, aren't you? I, I, completely. Because, um, you know, you got we've got to live
3: in a, a place where we look after everybody, haven't we? And this idea that I I, I had a kind of feeling that somehow it was just being accepted as an inevitability of modern life that, you know, I say for some people to succeed, other people had to sleep in doorways. Well, no, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it was, what really kind of came home to me last year was when a, a young lad I knew from my time as the MP for Lee died in a, in a, in railway road in Lee. And I just thought, this is just what is happening here. Mm-hmm. So I, I am passionate about it. And I've been bringing everybody together slowly around Greater Manchester, the the councils, the the voluntary organisations, the churches, and we've really built a movement now of people committed to change. And our goal is to end rough sleeping. And the big change we've made has come quite recently with the launch of what we call A Bed Every Night. So this is a campaign over this winter to give every rough sleeper somewhere to go every every night of the week. Mm. And already it's having amazing results. 375 people have been through already. Last weekend, there were about 180 people in the warm who would have been outside before. And we've got about 115 people who've already been in the shelters and now moved through to a fixed address. So people are already moving through as well. It's amazing. And it's a simple thing, Clint, isn't it? You know, we learned this last winter where we didn't do this and we just opened the shelters every night. It went below freezing. If you're in, out, and not settled, you can't really do anything else than worry about where your next meal's coming from. You know, so you can't move forward if you're in that position, can you, where you're just kind of bouncing around the streets. But what we found is the minute you do settle people and put them in a a place every night and their basic needs have been properly met, then they can start to move forward and think about a positive future. So it's, it's simple, but, you know, quite groundbreaking. No other city is doing this, Clint, no other city. But the message we want to send out is, well, if we can do it, why can't
2: everywhere? Yep, it's a beautiful thing. And the best look over the coming months with that. You're still looking at 2020 to get all this sorted out. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, you
3: know, I've definitely uh, made a rod for my own back, if you like. But <laughs> but this is the thing, you know, I used to hear people in uh, Westminster say, oh, under-promise and over-deliver. Well, to be honest with you, that wouldn't end rough sleeping. You've got mm. to set a big ambition, haven't you? Yeah. Even though there's a risk that I might eventually be accused of failing to deliver it. Do you know, if, if we got like three quarters towards it, yeah, it would be absolutely. massive. Yeah. Uh, but... No, I, I'm still of the view that there's no reason why we can't end rough sleeping here. You know, we've, we've got a position now where we're effectively trying to do it for the winter and the challenge is to make it all year round. You know, let's yeah. have enough places for everybody to go every night of the week. Obviously, I can't force some people to go into those places, but, you know, I, I, I want at least to have enough places open all year round so that we can legitimately say there's,
2: that people don't have to sleep rough if they don't want to. Yeah. And currently, what other causes are you devoting most of your... The rest of your passion too. What else is there? The, tra- uh, the trains you're doing. You're doing well, I was going to say show- I was show- out, I was show- passionate about the trains. <laughs> but I, have to fix trains. It. I
3: it- am. I am. And and that's been the most frustrating thing of this year. Not just for me. I know it's for everybody. You know the transport systems uh, a mess, isn't it? And uh, the trains particularly. And I I kind of feel the, the biggest challenge I've got as I look to the future is to get this place moving properly and get the transport working for people get it integrated properly, the buses and the trams and all of that. And I think that's the biggest single challenge in, in front of me. I mean, I'm doing what I can, where I can. So, you know, we've made the tram cheaper in the mornings, one pound, you know, it's coming on the tram now. Cut the price of tickets for 16 to 18 year olds. I'm still looking to bring through a free bus pass for 16 to 18 year olds. So there's some things I can do straight away, but long-term, this transport system needs a complete overhaul. And I'll, you know, be putting plans forward in the new
2: year for that Yeah. I imagine it's draining some of this stuff that you're talking to. I can't imagine a world where I, I had that on my shoulder. All I've got to do is press, <laughs> press, press play, and but, shout "Boon a bit. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I fancy a bit of your life for a bit. It well, might be, uh, might be good. But it's, you know, it is a there is a lot of pressure. I'm not going to sit here and say I get everything right. Of course I don't. You know, and I don't mind people pointing out to me if they don't agree with what I'm doing or they think I should be doing something and I'm not. And so you know, all they can know is. I am hundred percent dedicated to what I'm trying to do. I won't get everything right, but it will never be for lack of commitment or, or effort. I am frustrated at times when people tweet me about the trains and the state of the roads, and you know I don't have enough power over those things at the moment, and mm-hmm. that is frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I will keep working on it as long as as long as people want me as mayor, I'll I'll be here. And I I don't see this as a stepping stone back to Westminster. You know, this this is
2: what I want to devote myself to. Let's talk about family. You married a Dutch girl, didn't you, Marie? How does she like Manchester?
3: Oh, she loves it. She used to work here herself for, like for here. a while. Yeah, so no, she loves it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah she is Dutch, uh, but I don't think would want to live anywhere else, to be honest. She regularly uh, in and out of, in and out of town. People probably wouldn't know her. Uh, she, she doesn't. She doesn't behave like the uh, the mayoral first lady. She keeps a, <laughs> keeps a low profile. Um, I think she, uh, she over the years she's um, she was. For a while, a regular favourite of the Daily Mail, and not in a flattering way. So uh, she, uh, she she keeps uh, keeps her head down these days. Uh, and what about the kids? Are they still teaching you about new music? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you and I are DJing, aren't we? Uh, uh, later and that's right, yeah. uh, uh, my son has uh, chipped in with a with a bit of advice. So yeah, uh, yeah giving his dad a bit of a, a bit of street <laughs> credibility that I don't deserve. But no, I, he Jimmy is uh, massive on uh, on on his music, and it's been a joy actually to go to gigs with him around around the city because you know he's introduced me to things that I'd kind of become lazy about really and I've got back into a lot of new music because of him so yeah he uh there is nothing he 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 doesn't know uh, he probably knows more than you Clint well we'll see <laughs>
2: send him in here notes. <laughs> yeah. on a more serious note we had a moment back the 5th of May of 2017 you started your new job as the Mayor of Greater Manchester And just a few days later, two and a half weeks later, the city was thrown into perhaps its darkest chapter in in history. I'm talking about the Manchester United tragedy. And you handled it brilliantly. You handled it impeccably. You give the people of Manchester the strength that they needed through that time. And you're a great leader. Behind all the public activity that went on, all the stuff we saw, how did the events of the 22nd of May 2017 affect you personally?
3: Well, oh my goodness! I mean, it, 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 in a massive way, uh, Clint. I mean, it's very nice what, what you said. I mean, I, you know, I remember like everybody hearing the news and just feeling utterly sick to the pit of my stomach and not knowing at the moment. Then I just thought, what, what, what do we do? You know, what, what do I do? How do we uh, respond to this? Um, you know, obviously, didn't sleep that night. Probably many people didn't. Um, drove into Manchester about four thirty, five o'clock. Uh, and went into the building that we have got on Oxford Oxford Street and Oxford Road a bit nearer the nearer the library and um one thing I remember very vividly was the number of people that were in and already there and that mattered and as I started to go around the streets, people were coming up to me, so I was saying, right you you okay and you know, mm. there was a kind of regard- you know immediately I felt people behind me you know mm. and, and that's kind of helped me you know it wasn't me just deciding on my own, there were people around you know and that's what's great isn't it about about greater manchester the the strength of the relationships the partnership the solidarity it was there and i felt it and because of that i think it helped me respond then in the way that i the way that i did um and it, you know i knew i was you know responsible for leading an, an incredible place but i i really will look back on that day and that moment as a kind of time and i felt it in in a in a kind of awesome mm. power of of this place in terms of the solidarity the way it you know backs people up it, it was yeah and and it, as you say the darkest of the darkest of times and it will remain so and you know as we get towards christmas we think of the families those injured those still recovering it's you know it never gets easier for them i don't think all i would say is you know, we we will you know this isn't just responding in the moment i, I continue to meet the families because in my view they're forever a part of manchester it's our job to look after them and we will and you know we'll we'll continue to to respond in the right way. And in my view, the right way is not to let extremists, terrorists of any kind divide us, make us change who we are, how we live our lives. You know, I thought it was great that we Mm. went back out to those big events in the city, straight after music is the lifeblood of this place. I think not just me, the way everybody responded, Clint, was unbelievable. And really, it was the best response to terrorism because terrorism is designed to divide. It's designed to create a cycle of violence. And there's a kind of... the kind of savviness of people here, just all right, we're not letting you, you know, we're going to do exactly what you don't want us to do, and that is not let hate each other stand together. And that's what Manchester did
2: make the music even louder and uh, uh, keep correct. The music going. And that
3: was that was wonderful.
2: Like Richard Ashcroft once said, music is power,
3: it is, isn't it? And it, it, it's it's raw power, it's emotional power. It's like you know, you can't ca- capture it through anything else. You can make I can make a hundred speeches and n- not get anywhere near what that one person did when they started up that. Don't Look Back in Anger in St Square yeah. I was there. Anybody who was there will never forget it. Yeah. You know the, the power of music in those moments far transcends anything that, that politics or pr- practically any other form of the arts or, or media can do.
2: Andy, if I was to ask you, who were your favourite humans of Manchester of all time, past or present, who would they be? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that is such a hard
3: question, isn't it? Because the thing about this place is it's people, isn't it? There's just so many people. Um, who've done and still do incredible things. If you're forcing me to to choose, Clint, um, I'm going to start with an an adopted Mancunian Vincent Company. Obviously means a great deal to a lot of people in this city. Well, not everybody, half of the city. Um, (laughs) uh, I think that the other
2: half, I think the red half like him as well.
3: Yeah, he's moving into that space now, isn't he? But he came forward and uh, said to me that he was prepared to dedicate his testimonial year to to the whole campaign against homelessness and that's a big thing isn't it for a a Premier League footballer of that stature yeah captain of his country he doesn't have to does he and doesn't have to put himself out there in that way but he you know he he did it describing what the city meant to him and how he as someone coming here felt and I thought that was just so powerful actually you know in in terms of you know he felt it was giving back to the city what it, it had given to him and um so I'd have Vincent uh, in there. Emmeline Pankhurst, I think in this particular year, you know, we're not short of uh, strong women with opinions, are we? In, uh, in Manchester, but <laughs> she was—I think some, the, some of us are married to him. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but I, I just think it's it's right finally that she's getting the the recognition that she deserves. And you know, people talk about Millicent Fawcett, who was also involved in the in the whole campaign for for women's votes, but. Our Emmeline, I think, was was the one who kind of really was the kind of the brains behind it, the driving force behind it. And it's gonna be quite a moment when the statue is unveiled uh, in St. Peter's Square. And it's, you know, it's gonna be great, that isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. She's gonna have a place. You know, Manchester's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not big on statues. You know, if you walk around, there's a few, but it's like that belief, isn't it? In the in the B that you don't over promote. Everyone's equal, and no yeah. one's more important than anyone else, and therefore you don't overpromote the individual. So if you look around the city. There's quite a, not many statues, but I think that says a great deal about the incredible uh, spirit of of, of Emily and that she gets her statue. Mm-hmm. And then the third is a more personal one. People may remember Paul, but the MP for Withenshaw and Sale East, people remember Paul Goggins, lifelong city fan, all round the most wonderful human being I've ever ever had the privilege to to know or to work with. Actually, Paul kind of never sought the spotlight. You know, he he just didn't do things for publicity, uh, even though he was an MP. Yeah. Um, he just did the right thing and did it quietly. You know, always speaking up for for prisoners, for, uh, you know, for uh, the dispossessed in one way or another, uh, but also was the, the lone voice on the contaminated blood issue for a long time. His predecessor, Alf Morris, you know, Alf was a longstanding MP. Uh, had, had championed that cause, and Paul took it up after him and kept it alive when no one else was paying any attention. And mm. um, yeah, the fact that there's now a public inquiry on that issue is down to Paul, even though he's no longer with us, sadly. But you know, Paul Goggins, you know, a, a truly great Mancunian, even though a name that probably not everybody would know.
2: Final thing, Andy, describe Manchester in three words. That's a hard link, isn't it? That's that's very, very hard.
3: Um, brutal, isn't it? Brutal. It is a br- that It's is such a big br- city. Yeah. Politicians stuck for words here, but uh, <laughs> yeah. How to describe it? I was gonna say best place in the world, but I was just counting them up in uh, in, in my head there, and that's more than that's more do, than three. So Best place in the world. Yeah. Best place <laughs> in the world. world. Yeah, and even in a Lee accent you They're can't. Still yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> best place ever Yeah, yeah, yeah Okay, I'll go with that Yeah, yeah,
3: thank you You're in the right job, Clint you are got a good way with words I should be able to do it As an English student But um, Best place ever Yeah, well, I'll go with that And I believe that Because what defines a place You know, it's not all the Architecture And the I don't know The The scenery And the, It's the people, isn't it? Yeah You know, it's the people yeah. And you can travel the world And you will not find better people Than the ones Who live right here Best place ever.
2: Andy Burnham, thank you for being a human of Excess Manchester. Thank you, Clip. That was Andy Burnham. Make sure you join us next week, where I'll be joined by the hitman himself, Ricky Hatton. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at humansexcess and subscribe to Humans of Excess Manchester. Rate us, feel free to leave us a comment. Thanks for listening. See you next week.